All right, we've got a lot to do this morning, so uh, we need to jump right into it. Today, as you know, this is the first Sunday of the month, so we have the privilege of sharing together in the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, to me, it's one of the most special things we do uh, here at DRBC. We'll do that in about the last 20 minutes of our service. Chris will be leading us in that, uh, the taking of the bread and the cup, so I want to give him plenty of time. So please, quickly, open to Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> Excuse me, our study this morning is the book of Acts chapter 4. So if you'd open your Bible or your smartphone to that passage of Scripture, and there is a sermon note sheet in your uh, bulletin if you care to take notes. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the, this uh, joyous time for us to be together to worship you, to, to uh, raise our voices in song, to uh, raise our thoughts to your throne. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for loving us as you do. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son Jesus to Calvary's cross to die in our place. Thank you, Lord. Now please open our minds to your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two weeks we've been studying Acts chapter 3, the healing of the man born lame. He was over 40 years old, and you remember that Peter and John, on their way to the temple uh, for the time of afternoon time of prayer, and they encounter this man, and he's begging for alms, and instead they heal him. So we've been talking about the purpose of healing in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the apostles and I, so I just want to kind of put the exclamation point on that this morning, spend just a few minutes before we get into chapter 4. The purpose, remember, that of Jesus doing the miracles he did was to authenticate his person and to authenticate his ministry. Who is he? He's the Son of God. He's God incarnate. Who is he? He's the Messiah expected by Israel. And he did the things that they should have expected that the Messiah would do. He healed. He cast out demons. He did miracles. All of those things would identify him, would authenticate him as the Messiah. That was the purpose of miracles in the life of Jesus. So the question then is, what's the purpose of miracles in the lives of the apostles? Miracles such as the one we've studied in Acts chapter 3. The purpose is the same. That is to identify us with Jesus Christ. To identify us with his ministry. To authenticate the ministry of the apostles. That was the idea. So it was to identify the apostles' ministry with the ministry of Jesus Christ and to authenticate the apostles' ministry as uh, the, uh, the uh, representatives of Jesus Christ. That was the purpose. Now, I want to just share a couple more thoughts about that, and uh, then we'll move on into chapter 4. I'd like to share with you again, I mentioned to you last week, John MacArthur's book, Charismatic Chaos, which is an excellent study in the whole question, and I just... If you have an interest in studying it, that's uh, probably where you should start. But he said this, the, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 12, Paul laid out 
the marks of an apostle when he was defending his own ministry. And Paul said this, the marks of an apostle, the things that mark an apostle, are signs and wonders and miracles. They identified the apostles with Jesus. They identified the apostles with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, MacArthur says miracle powers then were limited in scope and restricted to apostolic ministry. They were not given to the average Christian, though some who were commissioned by an apostle shared in the ministry of miraculous gifts. One such example would be Philip. We'll come upon him uh, throughout the book of Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 8. The astute, uh, MacArthur goes on, the astute theologian B.B. Warfield correctly observed that the miraculous gifts were not meant for the possession of the primitive Christian as such, that means the early Christian as such, nor for that matter of the apostolic church or the apostolic age for themselves. They were distinctly the authentication of the apostles. So these early miracles by the apostles were meant for their what? Don't be afraid to say it. Authentication. Authentication. They were part, Warfield says, of the credentials of the apostles as the authoritative agents of God in founding the church. So it was for their authentication and it was to show that they were authoritative agents of God in founding the church. Well, MacArthur goes on to say, the gift of healing was one of the miraculous sign gifts given to help the apostolic community confirm the authority of the gospel message in the early years of the church. Once the word of God was complete, and this is important, once the word of God was complete, the signs ceased. Once the word of God was complete, the signs ceased. Miraculous signs were no longer needed. The apostles used healing only as a powerful sign to convince people of the validity of the gospel message. We see that clearly in Acts chapter 3. You're going to see it again this morning in Acts chapter 4. Also, remember that there were many people the apostles didn't heal. There were many among their own number, among their own uh, 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 people that they traveled with that they did not heal uh, because it didn't fit the purpose of healing, which was to identify them with Jesus Christ and to convince of the validity of the gospel. For instance, we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 27 of Epaphrodites, a good friend of Paul's. And Epaphrodites had come to help Paul out and he got deathly ill. In fact, he almost died. And Paul said, God spared him, and he was merciful to me in that he spared Epaphrodites from death. Now you have to ask yourself the question, Paul, you could heal people. Paul, you did heal people. Why didn't you heal Epaphrodites? What kind of friend are you? Why didn't you heal Epaphrodites? Because... The purpose of healing was a specific purpose. 
to convince people of the validity of the gospel, to identify with Jesus Christ, to authenticate the person and the ministry. That was the purpose. It didn't fit in that case. What about Trophimus, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20? Paul cavalierly says, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. What? Paul, you can heal. Why would Trophimus is a friend of yours? Why would you not heal him? Why would you leave him sick? Because there was a purpose to validify the message, to validify what they preached, to authenticate, to identify. That was the purpose of healing. Uh, another is Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. Timothy was apparently a kind of nervous person. Maybe we could call him Nervous Nelly. I don't know. But he had stomach trouble. Poor Timothy had stomach trouble. Things stirred up within him and he had some stomach trouble. And drinking the water wasn't helping because the water in that day was not any good. So what did Paul tell him? Let me heal you, Timothy. Then we'll take care of this problem once and for all. Bam! Is that what he did? No. What did he tell Timothy? Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Why didn't he just heal him? He had the power of healing. You see, healing wasn't just done in that day to improve people's lives. I think we get that wrong. It wasn't done just to improve people's lives. Healing was done in that day to validate, validate the message, to identify with Jesus Christ, to authenticate the message and the messenger. That was the reason. Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, and, and many believe it was a physical illness of some kind. And... Paul himself could not heal himself, nor be healed. And when he went to God, he said, I went to God three times and said, please remove this from me. And God said to him, my is sufficient for you. You see, healing wasn't done just to improve people's lives. In fact, there are many times in the Scripture when God allowed sickness and even death to bring Christians further along in their walk. To help them to grow. To help them to come to maturity. MacArthur says, healing was a miraculous sign gift to be used for special purposes. It was not intended as a permanent way to keep the Christian community in perfect health. I like, that's a great statement, folks. Can I say it again? But you can't stop me, right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess you could, but please don't storm the, the podium. <laughs> Healing was a miraculous sign gift to be used for special purposes. It was not intended as a permanent way to keep the Christian community in perfect health. We miss that. We miss that understanding. Now, I want to share one more thing with you about this, and, and we'll move on. And uh, how many of you are familiar with the name Hin? Oh yeah, oh yeah. What's the first name? Benny Hin, prosperity gospel preacher, healer, par excellence. 
Benny Hinn and the Benny Hinn ministry, right? How many of you are familiar with the name Costi Hinn? A few of you are. Who is Costi Hinn? He's the nephew of Benny Hinn. And he was vitally involved in the ministry of Benny Hinn. And in fact, he was delivered from the ministry of Benny Hinn and the error in that ministry. Well, a couple of years ago, he gave his testimony in Christianity Today, and you can still Google it. It's the October 2017 issue of Christianity Today has Costi Hinn's testimony. And, and it's well worth reading. It's not that long, and it's well worth reading. I'm going to share just a bit of it with you this morning. By the way, if you really want to study more about this whole issue of healing, uh, prosperity gospel preachers, I, I, I urge you to get two of Costi Hinn's books. He has two out, two out right now. He has one coming out in September. The two that are out right now, the first is called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. The second is called Defining Deception. That's the title of the second. And in September, his third book will be released. It's entitled More Than a Healer, Not the Jesus You Want, But the Jesus You Need. So I want to share a little of Costi Hinn's testimony. He said this, and, and boy, I wish I could just sit here and read this whole thing to you, but we got so much more to do. Growing up in the Hinn family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle, this, these are his words, folks. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. He, he goes on in his testimony to talk about uh, so many uh, issues going on in his life. Um, uh, and so many of the perks of being Benny Hinton's nephew and working in that ministry. I don't have time to go through all that. But he says this, While I struggled, while struggling to strike out into ministry, I received a call from a pastor friend who was planning a church in California, offering me a part-time youth pastor position. It seemed like a perfect place to learn and grow, so Christine, that's his wife, and I packed up and took a step of faith as newlyweds. Soon after joining the staff, God put the final crack in my false belief system. He has already shared in the article about other things that God had shown him that he had previously believed that were absolutely untrue. And he says this is the final crack in his false belief system. The truth came bursting forth like a wave of grace. One of my first preaching assignments was John 5, 1-17, the healing at Bethesda. As I studied for the sermon, my pastor friend gave me a trusted commentary. Then the Holy Spirit took over. The passage showed that Jesus healed... Are you familiar with the healing at Bethesda, the man who was unable to move and they believed that the angels would come and stir the water, and if you could be the first person into the pool when the water was stirred, you'd get healed. Hallelujah. He said the passage showed that Jesus healed one man out of a multitude. The man didn't know who Jesus was, and the man was healed instantly. 
he, Costi said, this left three treasured beliefs in tatters. Isn't it always God's will to heal? No. Jesus only healed one man out of a multitude. Doesn't God only heal people if they have enough faith? No. This crippled man didn't even know who Jesus was, let alone have faith in him. Doesn't healing require an anointed healer, special music, and an offering collection? Costi said, no. Jesus healed instantly with a mere command. I wept bitterly over my participation in greedy ministry manipulation and my life of false teaching and beliefs. And I thanked God for His mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. My eyes were completely opened. What a testimony. He came to understand the truth. Certain gifts were given as sign gifts. They were given to authenticate the apostles, to authenticate their message, to validate their message, to identify them with Jesus Christ. And healing is one of them. Now, chapter 4 is an interesting chapter. It even gets better. Chapter 4 is a great chapter, and I think the word that you could write over chapter 4 on your, on your Bible if you want to is the word courage. The word courage. What we see now in a great way is the courage of Peter and John in particular, the courage of the apostles as they face for the first time the beginning of official opposition to them and to their message. That's what we see in chapter 4. Now, I tell you, it's, it's just amazing. I want you to think about this with me. Just weeks before, just weeks before, Peter was cowering at a fire in the courtyard of the high priest while Jesus would be, was being abused and he did nothing about it. Fearful for his life, he refused identification with Jesus Christ. Just a little over seven weeks later, Acts chapter 4, look at the difference. Look at the difference that has come in to Peter's life. What courage! Just weeks before he was cowering, just weeks before he was denying that he was the disciple of Jesus Christ. Where did this courage come from? Well, it came from many places, but two in particular. His courage came from his confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus was alive from the dead. He was one of the witnesses. He knew that Jesus was alive from the dead. He knew the truth of the resurrection. And he was changed by the truth of the resurrection. The second reason I think that he had such courage and the apostles had such courage is because now that the Holy Spirit had been given to them to indwell the church and every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he 
had was the power of the Holy Spirit in his life to give him boldness, to give him boldness. What a change has come over him from the courtyard of the high priest to once again in chapter 4, he stands before that same high priest. And this time he says, you know what? If I have a choice between listening to you and listening to God, I choose God. I choose God. Well, we're going to quickly go through this chapter because we do have the Lord's Supper and I want to give Chris all the time that he needs. I like how one person described chapter 4 and indeed the book of Acts. Acts is a record of power in the midst of persecution. Acts is a record of power in the midst of persecution of life and health pouring from a living Christ into a sick society through the channel of obscure men and women very much like you and me. God used obscure men and women in the power of the Holy Spirit and the confidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to change the world of their day. Even in the midst of official persecution. And you and I still can change the world today, even in the midst of official persecution. Well, we read the priests and the captain of the guard. The priests, by the way, were primarily Sadducees, and we'll study them in a second. The priests and the, cap the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two religious groups of that day. Most of the priests were Sadducees. The, Sadduc the temple, the captain, the priests, and the captain of the temple guard, that is the person who was responsible for order in the temple, and the Sadducees. And uh, we'll uh, talk a little about that. They, they were sad, you see. <laughs> they were sad, you see because they did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, let, me, let me go through a couple of, their, of their, the things they believed or did not believe. They accepted only the Pentateuch. They did not believe in angels or demons. They did not believe in the resurrection or the doctrine of the resurrection. They were connected to the excuse me, they were the wealthy ruling aristocracy. I forgot that one. They were the wealthy ruling aristocracy of the day. Uh, number five, they were interested in the status quo. They wanted to keep things just the way they were. They didn't want to rattle Rome. They had a vested, vested interest in accommodating Rome. They didn't want to cause themselves trouble and interrupt the stream of money. Sixthly, they rejected several hopes. They rejected the hope for God's intervention in the life of the nation. They rejected the hope for a coming Messiah. That's the Sadducees. 
they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, this is the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. Do you remember? They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, remember it was after three o'clock, they put them in jail until the next day, but many, and this is the amazing thing because this is what God does. God isn't hampered by the whims of men. God isn't hampered by the winds of government. Because verse 4 tells us, many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Even in the midst of official persecution, the church grew. Now the sad part is that many times when the church is not persecuted, it becomes lax, accommodating to the world. Don't want to mess up the status quo. It's when the church, whether we're talking about the ancient early church or we're talking about the church today, it's when the church is persecuted that suddenly we get really serious. Well, in the midst of this persecution, the church grew. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. This was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a number uh, was 71 elders, including the high priest, mostly Sadducees, and it kind of made up a high court, or you might call it a supreme court, and the high priest was president of the Sanhedrin, the same high priest who condemned Jesus. That's who we're talking about here. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander. We don't know any more about John and Alexander. And the other men of the high priest's family they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? In other words, in whose authority did you do this? In whose power did you do this? By what power or name did you do this? What's the basis for your authority? Well, verses 8-10, to 10, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, by the way, there we see again Peter speaking in response to the filling control of the Spirit over his life, which gave him power and authority and confidence in his message. And the Holy Spirit still does that for you and me today to give us confidence and boldness. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and don't you love the way he says this? Now listen to him. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, is that why you're calling us in here? 
You're calling us on the carpet because we did something good for a man born crippled. Let's all get this straight. Is that what's going on here? Peter said. I love the way he expresses that. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness, sorry, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness showed to a cripple and are asked how he, how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in case they didn't get the point, whom you crucified. You got it now, guys? Whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. Jesus conquered sin and death on Calvary's cross. Death could not hold him. God raised him from the dead. And he's the reason this man stands before you healed. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. In other words, he's saying that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be rejected. Now, the New Testament has a lot to say about this rejected stone. If you want to read some of it, 1 Peter chapter 2 especially verses 4 to 8, will give you some of that. But Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah who was predicted in the Old Testament would be rejected. Would be rejected. And then Peter boldly states in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. In other words, there's no other way for any person anywhere on earth, in any country, there's no way in any language, in any culture, in any religion, there's no way for anybody to be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. Not Buddha, not Hindu, not Hinduism, not Sikhism, not Mohammedism. Not this cult or that cult, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not the fake Jesus the Mormons portray. There's no other name given among men anywhere on earth, any culture, any language, by which we must be saved. Now you say, okay. Ooh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Doesn't that seem intolerant or narrow, narrow or dogmatic or arrogant? Yes. Seems like all those things. But why is that? Truth is narrow. Well, some of these people are sincere. But truth is the issue, not sincerity. I can sincerely get up in the middle of the night reaching out for some medicine for a cough or a cold and accidentally grab 
poison and I sincerely believe it's cough medicine and I take it, but what happens to me? Do I get healed of my cough? You bet I do. <laughs> but I was so sincere. When we're talking about truth, sincerity doesn't matter. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Paul said in 2 Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. I'm just giving you a little. I don't have time. In fact, I really should have been done. Um, Chris, take all the time you need. On behalf of these fine folks here, <laughs> uh, take all the time you need. Is that intolerant or narrow or arrogant or dogmatic? Yes, but truth is that way. If I step onto an airplane, and this ought to get some of you, <laughs> if I step into an airplane, I want a dogmatic pilot. I don't want one who says, I'm throwing out the rule book, we're going to fly by the seat of our pants today. No, thank you, just let me off. I'm not flying with somebody like that. I want to, I want to fly with somebody who knows the rules. I want to go to a dogmatic doctor who doesn't say, you know, I never tried this before, but let's do it. I want a dogmatic plumber. I don't want a plumber who decides, you know, I don't care how it's supposed to be hooked up. I'm hooking it up the way I want to. I want a dogmatic electrician. I don't want my house burning down because some guy did his own thing. Truth is dogmatic. Well, what happened? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, that only means that they were unschooled in the rabbinic method doesn't mean they were illiterate in some way. And finally, let's jump down to the conclusion of the matter. Then they called them in again, verse 18, commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey, to obey you rather than God. If I have a choice between believing and following God and believing and following you, you lose. God wins. Now, we've got so much more to say about this, but not till chapter 5 now. We'll get to it in chapter 5. Verse 19 has a similar statement. The, the rule is this. We, we obey authority. Whether we're talking about church authority or governmental authority, we obey authority. That's the rule. Until and unless it forces us to do an evil. When government says, I must do an evil, that's when I must say no. But we'll get to that. Let's, let me just share this and then we'll pray. It's still true, Howard Hendricks wrote, that God is looking for one man, one woman who will become his personal representative. Behind the pulpit, certainly, in a classroom, in a Bible school, by all means, through varied forms of Christian work, to be sure, 
but also in communities and homes and offices and shops or university and college and high school campuses where people who are blind to the glories of our Christ see him incarnate in you, his personal representative. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the boldness of Peter and John. Thank you for so great a salvation for our living Savior. And help us to be bold in sharing our faith in him and not waver. In Jesus' name, amen. Chris?